Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, so I went to a Bible college and in Bible college, girls dorms and boys dorms are separate for obvious reasons. And so we had this big open field behind the girls' dorms. It's a three-story brick building with a bunch of, like, individual dorm room units. And we like to go out there to play ultimate frisbee. So basically the end zone for one side went right past the beginning of the girls' dorm. And the guy that I was rooming with at the time was one of these people that just, like, super great dude, great heart, just lots of questionable decision-making paradigms. So we're playing ultimate frisbee, which is, you know, God's favorite sport, and this guy launches the Frisbee, and everybody, and a normal person looks at it and goes, okay, that thing is 36 feet in the air, and it's flying towards the roof of the building. Like, no one is going to catch that. So we all just kind of watch it go, except for this dude, just absolute crazy person. Like, I'm going to go get it. Like a, like a, you know, like the dog playing fetch can't help himself, just runs for this thing. And so the Frisbee starts to hook, and we're like, okay, that's going to bounce off the wall. He's certainly going to see that and stop. He does not see that. He does not stop. He runs full speed, trying to catch the Frisbee. One hand catches the brick wall. The other hand hits the glass to one of the rooms. And his body just kind of disappears into the girl's dorm, which is super forbidden in Bible college. Like, you're not allowed to go. Like, you don't even know it exists. Right? So he just, like, disappears through the glass. We're like, well, he's gone forever. This poor girl was sitting in her room, praying, when all of a sudden, a man comes crashing through her window. And so we're like, because he's just like, he's one of those overexcited puppy people. So we like, we find her at dinner. We're like, we're so sorry. That had to be terrifying. I mean, I know he's got to buy you a new window. We're so sorry that he's the way that he is. He really means well. But she's like, well, no, it's actually kind of funny because I was at my desk, which is basically right in front of the window. So the glass just goes like right over her head. And she's like, I was sitting there, I was praying. And she goes, and I was asking God that he would send me a man. I just didn't think he was going to do it right then. <laughs> and he's just, you know, it's just, there's people, right? It's just like they do things, they make these decisions, and the only acceptable answer to the South is the bless your heart, but not like the, oh, that's sad. But it's like, oh, man, well, you got to work on this. Right? Because sometimes people, they just make weird decisions. And there's this idea that's very commonly held that looks at the Old Testament and the New Testament say, well, God is like two different people, right? Old Testament God is all law, right? He's rules, he's judgment, he's fire and brimstone and wrath. And then the New Testament, Jesus comes along. And then it's all love and grace as Jesus runs around like Barney the Purple Dinosaur, singing songs and hugging everybody, and joy, happy moonbeams burst from the little star on his chest, which we all know is nonsense, right? It's clearly a rainbow on his chest. But there's this idea that's very common that basically when Jesus comes along, the law just kind of goes away. Like we don't worry about the law. We're New Testament Christians, not Old Testament Christians. It's all Jesus and grace now. 
But if you look at what Jesus does with the law, it's actually the opposite of that. In Matthew 5, Jesus comes along and he makes several, you've heard it said, statements, each one of them referencing the law. He says, you've heard it said, don't swear falsely. But I say, don't swear at all. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you even look at someone with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't even be angry. So Jesus systematically walks through the law, and he takes it from difficult to impossible. Because he says, what are the deals? He goes, the purpose of the law is not about your hands. It's about your heart. It's not enough to look right. It's not enough to act right. It's not enough to get the behavior and the actions right. Because righteousness is not a hands issue. It's a heart issue. See, the goal of the gospel is not moral tinkering and some light behavior modification. It's heart transformation. See, if all Jesus wanted to do was get us to follow a bunch of rules, he would have been BFFs with the Pharisees. And if you're not familiar with that particular group, the Pharisees are like the first century version of the super Christian, like the really oversaved person that's like, yeah, no, we don't do that in our house. They have all the rules. Like the Pharisees love the law. They were obsessed with the law. And in fact, they look at the law, they go, man, the law is great. You know what the law needs? Like more laws. Because that's like someone somewhere is going to look at all these laws and they're going to find a way to have fun anyway. And we got to put a stop to that. So let's just make up a bunch more rules to add to the rules because 613 is just not enough rules for anybody to be happy. These guys were masters of following the law down to the letter. They had mastered living right and looking right, and yet their hearts were wicked and in the wrong place. So this is our second week in our series, Uncommon Sense. What we're doing is we're studying through major themes in the book of Proverbs, because you can't really track through Proverbs verse by verse. Uh, so we're taking major themes from this book. Proverbs is a book of practical wisdom designed to teach us how to live well and to honor God in all of the complexities and challenges of life. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we are eventually going to get to Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, it's going to take us a hot minute to get there because what we have this morning is the biggest subject probably in the book of Proverbs. It's the core, it's the foundation, it's the most important piece. Get this right, and wisdom in your life will fall into place everywhere you go. Get this wrong, and you're always going to miss the mark. Learning wisdom in this area will not only enhance your relationship with Jesus, it will impact your decisions and your attitudes in every arena of your life. Because everything that we say, everything that we do, every decision we make, every attitude we have flows from one central place. And we've all taken different routes to get here. We've all have different experiences and backgrounds. But one thing that is the same, our hearts will lead us in one of two directions. The heart of wisdom leads us to life. And the heart of the flesh leads us to destruction. So let's jump in. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. 
Wisdom tells us to guard and to protect our heart. Because the heart is the master control of your life. This is a key issue, not just in Proverbs. This is a theme all throughout Scripture. It's mentioned almost a thousand times. And yet, despite that, the first century's view of the heart differs a little bit from our own. So when we think of the heart, we tend to associate it with feelings, right? Thought equals brain, feelings equals heart. Biblically, your heart was the center of your spiritual life. It was the source of your desires, your thoughts, and your character. The heart is what governed your decision-making. And it was the core of who you are. So think of it like this. Everything has two levels. There's how things look. That's the appearance. There's how things are. That's the reality. The reality, that's the heart. Proverbs 27, 19 says, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Your heart is the reflection of who you are. It's not how other people see you. It's not the image that you project. It's not the mask that you wear. It's not your reputation or how well you speak Christianese. The heart is you. It's the core, the fundamental thing that makes you you. It's the essence of you. So when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the reality of you. And this is what separates Jesus from religion. Religion is all about behavior. Do this, don't do that. But Jesus takes it a step further and he makes it about the heart, which is so much harder. Because you can change your behavior without doing anything with your heart. But you cannot change your heart without changing your behavior. So to emphasize the significance of this, and so we don't overlook how important this particular subject is, we look at Luke 10. Where man comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what's the greatest command of the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law is fulfilled, is fulfilled in these two commands. 613 laws fulfilled in two. And the most important element of the greatest command in the law is to love God with all of your heart. And therein lies the rub. We have a problem, which is sin. And this is going to sound really nuanced, but this distinction is very important. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. This is the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 5. Right? You can get the actions right. Your behavior can look good. You can follow the right things, but your heart can still be wicked and corrupt. And in case Jesus was too subtle about it, we have Romans 3. The heart is deceitful above all things. No, nope, that's not it. That's Jeremiah 17. Let's try again. Romans 3, there is no one who is righteous, no one who does good, no one who seeks God. When a heart is wrong, the life that flows from it will be wrong. And the unredeemed heart, that is the heart that is not surrendered to and submitted to Jesus, will always work to draw you away from Jesus. Church, any part of your heart 
that you maintain control of, any aspect of your life that you do not surrender to Jesus because you're not ready to trust him with that. I'll follow him here. I'll do what he says here, but this is mine. This is my little area. Anything that you hold on to control of in your heart will work against Jesus in your life, and it will do so in the most sinister and devious of ways. Proverbs 16. The plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. What is ingrained in us from our youth? Go with your gut. Trust your instincts. Follow your heart. Let your conscience be your guide. All of these statements make the same point. Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Because our heart is the filter through which we measure truth. And there are times, church, in our lives, there are things that we will hear, that we will decide whether or not we believe in it or agree with it based on how we feel about it. Oh, that feels wrong. That feels right. But we never stop to even consider, is it true? Is this accurate? Is it right? Because the heart gets the filter first. And we trust that instinct, we trust that belief, we trust that thinking and that wisdom and that understanding of our hearts because we're ingrained to do so. And so often what ends up happening is we form a belief and then we reject anything that's inconsistent with that belief. My favorite of this, uh, there's still a loud and proud group that does this in the church, but they come out to you and they're like, hey, uh, I really don't like the translation of the Bible you use because really it should be the King James Version. I'm like, okay, so this is going to be fun. They're like, well, because here's the thing, man, and I've had, like, I couldn't believe it, was somebody, but somebody said this because the King James Version is good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. Well, now I'm super triggered. So we're going to have a conversation, and it is not going to go well. So I'm like, let's just do a little thought process with me here, all right? Okay, when was the King James translation done? I don't know. I'll tell you. It's 1611. When did Jesus walk the earth? Like zero? Sort of like 3 to 6 BC, born around 30 AD, died. So he's gone from the earth 1,600 years before the King James translation comes out. Yeah, I still think it's his Bible, though. Okay, cool. Let's do a different thought experiment. How about this? Jesus didn't speak English. He didn't even speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. Is the King James Version in Aramaic? No, it's in English. It's Jesus' English. It's, no. I got another idea. Let's apply a different set of facts. The King James Version was translated prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the most reliable and accurate biblical manuscripts that we have. So if you hold the KJV up to basically any other translation of Scripture, it's inferior in its accuracy to what Jesus is saying. Hmm, okay, I get that. But, you know, it's Jesus' Bible, so I'm going to go with that. No amount of facts, reasoning, or explanation overcomes the pre-existing belief that was there. I remember when we first moved to South Carolina. 
Uh, we, were, we weren't sure where we wanted to live, so we're like, we're going to rent for a little bit, and then we can kind of figure out where we want to actually settle down. We're still trying to figure out where we're going to do that at. We moved like nine times into like the same neighborhood. It's like, let's go to that house. Cause why? I don't know. Because putting all your stuff in boxes is super fun. I highly recommend it if you enjoy suffering. Uh, so we're at this house, and like the, the landlady, you know, the lady's going to run this house. It's like she's showing us around. And so she finds out that I'm a pastor, and that inevitably leads to like weird conversations. Because usually it happens, and like the person's like, I'm just going to pretend you didn't say that and then never talk to you again. That's route one that's really common. And route two is you get into weird spiritual flexing. We're like, let me give you my spiritual resume and all the cool stuff that I've done with church and all this. And I'm like, I, I okay? Like, I didn't need that. That's not why that happened. And so we're talking. She finds out I'm a pastor. And she goes, oh, you know what? They're like, I never drink. I'm like, I was just asking about the utilities. Like, what's the electric bill tend to run in the house? Uh, is that, can you tell me that? No, it's, it's, I don't drink. And I told my husband, listen, I want you to be understand like this because this is how spiritual I am. I told my husband, if he ever brought alcohol into our house, I would divorce him. Like, well, cool. So now we're at the point where I can't let this go because I'm me and I don't like this. So I'm like, is that really how you think you should do this? Because I can't keep my mouth shut. So I'm like arguing with a lady that's going to rent us the house and that we're going to then debate how much we should pay for a month. I'm like, this is not going to go well. I'm like, cool, here we go. Wisdom is keep your mouth shut. I have none of that, so let's do a whole series on wisdom, and I'll talk about it. So like, do you think that's how you honor God? And she goes, yeah. I'm like, well, so what do you do with the fact that the first miracle that Jesus does before he begins his ministry is turn water into wine? That's the first one. Well, because let me just be, before you go down this road, it wasn't like Odul's wine, right, where it's like it looks like wine and it tastes like wine, but it's actually non-alcoholic, because then what's the point? You didn't do that. It's not non-alcoholic wine. The wine had alcohol in it. The Bible talks about drunkenness being a problem, the abuse of alcohol being a problem. But the Bible doesn't say God hates having a drink. What it does say is God hates divorce. So your solution to honor God that you're very proud of is I'm going to do a thing that God hates over a thing that God doesn't hate? Yep, because that's what mama taught me. Okay. When we hold a belief, it is incredible how willing we are to reject anything that doesn't fit with that belief, even if it comes from the mouth of God himself. See, we believe our hearts are pure. We believe our intentions are good and that we are, for the most part, noble. And then Jeremiah 17, 9 happens. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. You know what the greatest source of deception and lying is in your life? The devil. Actually, no. Not the devil. It's a good guess, though. You play the odds on that one. It's not the guy at work who's actually allergic to telling the truth. The greatest source of lying and deception in your life is your own heart, because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The scary thing about that church is means that our heart can be wrong without us even realizing it. Our heart can be wrong while we are convinced that it is right, because everyone is justified in their own mind. A, ways, a man's ways seem right to him, 
but lead to destruction. Because we know we're not perfect. Yeah, I make mistakes. I mess up, but I mean well. I try hard. I want to do good. So my intentions are good, and that's got to count for something. This is why the greatest objection to God being good and loving and hell existing and people going there is, but I'm a good person. This is the problem we have, because if God is really good and loving, does he send good people to hell? Because at our core, we believe that we are good, despite our mistakes. Even when we're doing something that we know is wrong, we know that we're doing it for a good reason. Like, have you ever in your life done something you knew was wrong and didn't have some way to justify, rationalize, or excuse it? I know God says not to do this, but here's why it's okay for me to do this. Right? We can justify anything. See, the heart of the flesh leads us to a death that feels like life along the way. Jesus calls us to a life that sometimes feels like death along the way. And the path that we choose will be determined by this. Where have you placed your trust? The core issue of the heart that governs every behavior and attitude that we have, all of our decision making, is where is your trust? Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. If the heart is deceitful, we would be fools to follow it. If our own thinking, our own view of what is right leads to destruction, then following our own instincts and understandings is about the worst thing that we can do. The Bible warns us over and over, don't trust in yourself, don't rely on yourself, don't turn to yourself, but that is our natural instinct. We trust, we believe, we turn to ourselves. We lean on ourselves and on an understanding and a wisdom that comes from us. So 1 Corinthians 1.19 says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is what got us into trouble in the garden where sin was born. We chose rather than to trust God, to seek an understanding of our own. Right? I want the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want to do what God says. I want to do the knowledge of good. I want that for myself. Rather than obey God, we were tempted to become like God. This is the sin of pride. And Proverbs warns us about it very strongly. 16 verses 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor then divide the spoil with the pride, with the proud. Pride, church, it's not strutting around like a peacock thinking you're better than everyone. Pride is not an overinflated view of your own self-worth. It's not extreme confidence. Pride is living for yourself. 
Pride is a self-centered, self-focused, self-governing life. Pride is doing things your way, living independent of God, living as if you are God and have the right to determine what's good and what's bad on your own. Pride is trusting in yourself, relying on yourself, depending on yourself, taking care of yourself. Leaning on your wisdom, on your understanding as a source of truth. And what ultimately happens in our hearts is that that pride, because it's so clever in how it presents itself and so weaselly in the way it worms itself into our hearts, is it gets to the spot where we start without even realizing we're doing it, defining what God is like for him. And we say it without even registering, well, my God's not like that. I don't see God like that. To me, God is, and what we do is we start going through and we start cherry picking the different characteristics of God that we like. We go, my God's got these things and all the other things that don't fit with that. We go, yeah, no, I'm good. We don't want that. Like he's a buffet that we just get to take what we want and leave the rest. Trouble is that God is who God is regardless of how you feel about him. We don't get to define him. We don't get to change him. Wisdom is not us determining what we think God is like. Wisdom is seeking what God is genuinely and actually like. Because the heart that is unredeemed, that is unsurrendered and unsubmitted to Jesus, will always strive to lead us away from him. The heart thinks it's right, believes it's right and it's good. But the heart is the problem. And the solution is Proverbs 3. Told you it would take a hot minute to get there. Here we are, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Wisdom comes from knowing where to place your trust. Not in yourself, not in your understanding, not in your ability to see, in how you see it, in your perspective, your beliefs, and your ideas, but in the Word of God. See, it's one thing to obey Jesus when you naturally agree with Jesus. You're like, like, I'm a really honest person, and I believe in honesty as the best policy. And so when Jesus says, don't lie, I don't lie, I agree with that. That's not obedience. That's a coincidence. What happens when your life doesn't fit with the gospel? What happens when the Bible contradicts your lifestyle, your values, your views, your beliefs? What happens when the Bible goes against how you think on a political issue or on a social issue? What happens when the Bible doesn't say what you want it to say? This is the crux of the issue. When the Bible disagrees with you, which one do you try to change? What is unbelievably incredible to me is the amount of theological acrobatics that people will do to avoid what the Bible says. Well, the Bible says this. Yeah, but you know, like that's like, that's like Paul in the epistles. Like, does that really, is that really God's word? Like, how do we know? 
Or that was a cultural thing. That doesn't really apply anymore. Yes, there are cultural things to the Bible, and it is important for us to contextualize certain specific things. But the flippancy and comfort with which people will do that is truly alarming. Because here's what happens, church. We start with the answer, with the conclusion. This is what I believe. This is what I think. This is how I feel. And I'm going to go to the Bible, and I'm going to look for verses that support that. And I will rip them out of context and say, ha, see, told you. That's called proof texting. It is not good. When you start with the answer and then go to the word, the truth is you've already rejected the word because you've placed yourself above it. And you're not going to God's word to seek God and to know him. You're going to his word to justify yourself. When our life doesn't fit with God's word. Which one do we strive to change? Sometimes it is so subtle, we don't even realize that we're doing it. But to trust in the Lord with all of your heart is to go to him in surrender, in submission to what he says. It is to go to the word, looking not to change the word, but to change yourself. Because the wisdom of the heart is humility. It's not trusting in yourself and in your understanding. It's submitting and surrendering yourself to Jesus. This is the ultimate battle of your life. I don't have to emphasize it enough to make it clear that this is how significant it is. This is the greatest battle you will fight. You will fight it every single day in pretty much every choice that you make. It is the battle between pride and humility. Pride gets offended. Pride gets sensitive. Pride walks away. Humility listens. Humility accepts correction. In fact, humility delights in correction. Because let me be really clear. Hebrews 4 says, The word is sharper than any double-edged sword, capable of separating bone from marrow. The word of God will encourage you, it will challenge you, and it will absolutely, unequivocally convict you. If you can hear the Word of God, if you can read the Word of God, if you can study the Word of God and not feel convicted, it's either not God's Word or you're not paying attention. Because the Bible, guaranteed, not probability, will step on your toes. And it will do so regularly. And how we respond to that reveals the state of our heart. See, pride goes, ow, that hurt we should change how we word that because it bothered me and it might offend some other people and then it twists it into this sense of like nobility. Like, I'm not saying we need to change it for me because I know what it means and all that, but like, I'm thinking about this other person, right? They might, they might be put off by that and so we should think about them because it hurt my toes. When our toes get stepped on, pride says we need to move the word so it doesn't keep running over my toes. Humility goes, ow, 
that hurt. I should probably move my toes. What you change when the word doesn't fit with your life, your beliefs, your views, your attitudes, reveals whether it's pride or humility that reigns in your heart. When Jesus says, love your enemy, and you go, yeah, but that guy at work is super annoying, and I don't think Jesus meant him, so I'm just going to not do that with him because he's the worst. And you've decided that it's the word, not you, that needs to change. Humility is realizing that God's way is better, that his truth is greater, and it is surrendering yourself and submitting yourself to him. It is laying yourself at his feet to trust in God with all of your heart. It's not some casual, easy belief. It's not some light, well, I assert that I think that I'm a Christian and I believe that Jesus existed and that's it. No, to trust in God with all of your heart is to lay it all on the line for Jesus. It is to dedicate your life to Jesus. Live your life for Jesus, betting it all, not hedging your bets, not holding back, no escape route, no safety it's putting it all on the line for Jesus to trust in Jesus with all of your heart is to set all of your hope your life and your joy on him that if the Jesus doesn't work out if all of this was a big sham and we missed it we got nothing left because we didn't hold anything back. Trusting in Jesus with all of your heart is to stand where Jesus stands, to hold the views that Jesus holds, to trust him above all things, and to die on that hill. He said, I would rather stand alone with Jesus than to stand with the entirety of the world on the other side of him. greatest command in the law. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Wisdom calls us to guard and protect our heart. Jesus says in John 17, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Our love for Jesus is demonstrated by our obedience to Jesus. Our obedience to Jesus is fueled by our trust in Jesus. You see, where you place your trust determines every choice, every attitude, every moment of your life. For when you place your trust in Jesus, you recognize and believe that his ways are greater than your ways, and you naturally desire to surrender and submit to yourself to him. Will you be perfect in that? No, but you will strive and desire to obey him, which is the demonstration of love and the fulfillment of of the greatest command. Trust to obey, obey to love, love to trust. It ends with this. Proverbs 3, verse 7 says, fear the Lord and turn from evil. That's how you do it. It's as simple and as complex as that. Now, the word fear here does not mean like hang out and hide in the corner like he's the boogeyman coming for you. It's a reverent respect. 
It's an awe and a recognition of power. It's essentially the way a child looks at their parents. Because if you've raised kids, there are times, right, where you've got to tell your kid to do something that they don't by nature want to do. And so what is it that drives that child to go against their own nature, to overcome their own desire to do what their parents call them to do? It's the fear, the respect of the power and the authority that their parents wield over them. When I tell Rowan he can't have candy before he has dinner, and he wants to have candy before he has dinner because he has taste buds, the reason he says no, because he knows I'm the guy that'll turn off screen time. I'm the guy that can take his toys away from him. He understands that there are consequences to going against his parents, and so even when he does not desire innately by his own nature to do what he's told to do, he obeys sometimes. Sometimes it's generous. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. This is what it means to trust Him with your heart. Evil, not as you define it, but as Jesus defines it. The question that will change every moment of your life every decision and every attitude is where do you place your trust? Is it in Jesus? Or is it in Jesus only in so much as he agrees with you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times that we turn away from you, that like the prodigal son, we try to take what you, the gifts that you'll give us and run away to live for ourselves and to enjoy our life our way. But thank you for being there to greet us when we come to our senses and we come home. Now my prayer is that you would call all of us, that you would drive all of us deeper into you, that we would seek you, that we would strive for you, that we would have the humility to let go of ourselves in our pursuit of you, and that you would stir the flames of our desire for more of you, that every thought would be captive to you, that we would surrender not just a, an easy belief, but that we would surrender all of our heart and all of our ways to you. And I pray that through all that we do, you would receive all the glory and the honor. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.